Last week, Sandy Glouse, my father-in-law's girlfriend, passed away. If you're wondering what this has to do with journalism, it really doesn't. Not much, anyhow. But Sandy was a special person to my family. Actually, a special person, period. When my father-in-law Richard relocated to Southern California from New York about five years ago, he struggled to find his footing. Then he met Sandy, and she became, as he once said in a toast, the love of my life. Sandy was filled with energy and vigor. She was warm and compassionate. She liked casinos and People Magazine and Family Feud and Diet Pete Snapple. My kids called her Grandma Sandy, and they meant it. She was terrific with gifts, with little acts of kindness, with compliments. One more thing. On multiple occasions, Sandy performed in the 503 sports spots you hear during these episodes. So, with a broken heart and loving memories, here's one last nod to Sandy Glouse, our Grandma Sandy. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with Grandma Sandy. And on behalf of 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, we take this look back at Super Bowl history. I went to the DMV last week because I lost my wallet, and I had to wait in line for 45 minutes. And my bunions hurt, so I told the lady, Ma'am, my bunions hurt. Can this line move faster? I need to be back at the Hamilton house at 3 for Canasta. And she said, I'm sorry, but there are many people who were here first, so you have to wait. And I told her, but Marge is bringing brownies to Canasta, and she uses chopped nuts. My, I love chopped nuts, but the lady made me wait and I miss the nuts. Do you know what time Law & Order is on? Grandma Sandy, what does any of this have to do with the Super Bowl? Do you have my sandwich? My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Royce the Five Nine, my favorite hip hop artist, one of America's great writers, and a man with a legit appreciation for Shell Superstar. This is episode number 168. Let's listen Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. I think you are one of the great writers of this generation. I think you are a brilliant writer, and I've been wanting to have you on for a long time, and I didn't know how to, and, and I just. I just think you're a great writer. Thank you for those kind words, too, man. That, that means way more coming from you. I definitely you, appreciate that, man. Thank you. You're obviously a hip-hop artist. You're a producer. Blah, blah. Do you think of yourself as a writer? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. But I, um, I identify it from the perspective of, a, of an artist, though. Because hip-hop is kind of like, hip-hop inspires all of this, right? Everything that is me in terms of crea- creativity. So if you just think of the origin of hip-hop, it's basically a genre that started from nothing but ingenuity and creativity. So we're, we're basically taking things from other genres and we're mashing it together in our own way and just creating our own thing that's never been heard before that doesn't have rules of correctness. Right. So like, it's almost to your detriment to learn theory because to be too perfect is not hip hop enough. So if you develop as a writer in a system in an atmosphere like that, then you automatically are able to remove yourself from the pressures of having to be grammatically correct all the time. And um, some of the rules that apply to just being a writer, some of the academic rules, you don't worry about that stuff. And it's like you're writing, but it's more of a thing where you're applying taste level and 
you're doing something in a way where you're communicating with people and the way that they feel about it and the way that they're responding to it has not a lot to do with thought. That's the difference to me. Like when I, when I read something and I, I feel like that the writer is extremely just brilliant, mm -hmm. it hits me different. It's thought provoking. It stimulates my affinity that I have to words. I remember being young and just like reading like Shel Silverstein, everything. Oh, funny. You know what yeah. I mean? That, that, was my, that was my intro to having a different outlook on the way that he words things versus just something I'm just reading because people say you should read. That's really interesting. So, um, because when I was a young writer, I would write listening to a tribe called Quest. Like I would literally be writing articles while listening to the low end theory, because I thought there was something to the, there's something about hearing the words patterned in a certain way that yes. impacted the way I thought of writing. So do you feel like reading The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein? Shel Silverstein, I always bring him up because anything that I read from him as a child, he was the only name and face that I identified as this person wrote this. You know, it's like listening to The Chronic and then the first time as a hip hop fan, you just decide you want to know who made this music. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I, yeah. You didn't necessarily think to ask that prior to, but there's something about The Chronic. You can't quite identify with what that is, but you want to know who's responsible for the music part of it. Yeah. Before that, you were just paying attention to just the raps. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's what Shel Silverstein did for me. It was just like, what the fuck? It's like Shell Silverstein. It's like, so I just started looking for all stuff, all things Shell Silverstein. Anytime I went to the library. My favorite song of yours is not a song that a million people will probably talk about. It's amazing. I am not trying to be in this store all day. Y'all can play the game one time. Let me go get changed for a dollar real quick. Hey, my man, what's up? You got changed for a dollar? What's up, man? You, you don't remember me, dude. I think Amazing is one of the best constructed pieces of writing I've read in years and years. I think it is a beyond brilliant song. And there are things you do in that song. Like, I know you're like uh, some geek geeking out on one of my songs, but like the alliteration of bounce that ball, bounce that ball. Everywhere I used to go, I used to bounce that, bounce that ball. I'm Lil Ryan from 16650 The side conversations of your superstitious grandfather, like you do things that are almost Shel Silverstein-esque, weird asides and alliteration and blah, blah, blah. How does that start from a germ in your head to being? I want to say amazing, the idea came to me as I was listening to the beat. The first thing that I identified with was just how much I really loved the beat. That's when I was working on an album called Book of Ryan. And that, that was like the first album that I went into knowing exactly what I wanted the overall message to be, the overall theme to be, um, what the objective was for the album. Like all of the questions that we don't learn to ask ourselves until we, you know, we've made that mistake. You know what I mean? So that's, that's, that's probably why that album for me came 10 or 12 years later into the, into the business. And I feel like every artist should have one self-defining album that one album that somebody can listen to and not have to ask any questions about you. They should feel like they everything that is you is encompassed into this album. And, you know, once you're able to achieve that, then you can be just a vessel for creativity in any way that you feel. Prior to making Book of Ryan, my thing that I always went to was my first love, which I think is just a natural go-to, and that's, that's rapping, 
for the sake of rapping, like to, to be good at rapping. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know, like I won't even consciously do it, but a lot of raps would be competitive toward other MCs because that's where I fell in love with the art form at, at the open mics. Then I got to a point where I realized that that was just the foundation. That wasn't me. That wasn't everything that is me. That was just one layer, you know, and I, and then I started developing other sides of myself and other, I started figuring out ways to express myself in different ways. And then I started going through things in life personally, which started to make me feel like that I was living a double life of sorts. What do you mean? Well, I just feel like naturally as creators, especially black creators in hip hop, we express something to you through our music and then we live our lives separately. So like who I am and who my wife identifies me with, my wife literally calls me Ryan so she doesn't have to call me Royce. So my thing was the artists who I really respect and who I really admire, to me, they seem like that they're so comfortable within who they are and they're living so in the center of their own truth that they can actually exist in any atmosphere. They can walk into any room and, they, and present themselves the exact same way and it's appropriate. Why can't I be like that? You know what I mean? Like, why hold back? If there's seven days in a week and me and you, we have a, an agreement that we're going to speak three of those seven days every single week. And those three days, every time me and you speak, all I'm telling you about is how angry I was and how many people I used to shoot and how bad I had it. You would be well within your right to just categorize me as unhappy. If you're cool with being inaccurately depicted by people who are just interpreting what you're giving them based off of what you're giving them, you know, that's, that's one thing. But with me, it's, it's a way deeper connection that I want to have with whoever's listening to the music. And think of like Tupac, you know, Tupac on Toss It Up. It was clearly a record directed at women and just out of nowhere. It must have hit like 11 o'clock at night and the Hennessy, it must have kicked in. And then just out of nowhere, he just started dancing people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was like one minute they were saying Toss It Up and he just started dissing people. He was like rapping to women and then out of nowhere, he just started dissing people at the end of the verse. And to me, that's what hip hop is. To me, hip hop is unapologetically not dividing yourself up to cater to the needs of people. Hip hop is the unapologetic voice that makes people afraid because it's a superpower that artists have, that the writer has, that he or she may not know that they have, that they're using and they're making you decide something. Let me ask you this, here you are, and you're a dad, and you're a husband, and you're 43, right, you're 43, like if Tupac were alive right now, and I love Tupac, but if Tupac were alive right now, he'd be 40, I think he'd be 50 or 49 years old. Maybe he'd be driving a minivan. Maybe he'd be whatever. Who the heck knows? Does it get harder to relate as you get older? And you're like, again, you're like a 40-something-year-old guy, just like me. And, you know, you got your life and your kid and your trouble and uh, the diaper bag or whatever, you know, kids in college. Does it get harder to relate through hip-hop than when you're 25? Um, it's easier. And I think that's why I admire Tupac so much, because he was 24. He had complete control over my emotions. If you can just wrap your brain around that. Yeah. 24. I didn't even have control over my, my own emotions at 24. He expressed things to people, a level of enlightenment that was second to none for somebody at that age. 
it was like at 24 years old, he carried himself sometimes like a person who had already traveled the world 50 zillion times over. That's how he acted. Whenever he decided that he wanted to express a particular thing to you. And then it was like he had layers of himself where he fell into cliche traps, which allowed him to put himself in vulnerable positions and situations. That is the plight of the black man in America, summed up in one paragraph. Right. You know what I'm saying? So like, yeah, I do. when I was doing the book Orion, it was just like that was the goal. The goal was to show you, give you every layer and express it in a way where I'm taking steps to have just a little bit more control over the way that you process it and instead of letting, letting it be to, the, to your imagination. That's why a song like Amazing was so necessary because it was the moments on the album that talked about some of the good stuff that balanced out some of the bad stuff, which made it to where you couldn't just assume that my childhood was all bad. I talked about things in my childhood that were very, very bad, but those isolated situations aren't the completion of what created what you, what I am right now. Like, I'm just really fascinated because as a, as a journalist, I have a story. I reported for whatever, a few days or a few weeks or a book. I, I reported for a year uh-huh. and then I um, sit down and write it. You get an idea in your head. Do you have a notepad? Are you sitting down in front of a laptop? Are you always taking notes? Like, how do you actually write? What's your process? I used to do interviews and people would ask me, what's my writing process? And usually it's not an interview that's geared toward writing. And I'm not being interviewed by a genius writer. It's just a, it's just a journalist who I haven't done the self-defining album, so they don't know what to ask me. So they ask me shit like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so what's your process? You know what I mean? So I usually just find myself saying something like, I pace around with my notepad and I just play the beat. You know, I play the beat. And I, I used to say that so much and that became my thing. So I would go to the studio and I would turn on beats and I would just pace around, not really self-policing the process, just kind of like feeling like, okay, this is my process. And that turned into me going in the booth and laying down one main vocal and then another vocal where I accent certain words and then one more vocal where I put things in the fill-in. So it's three tracks there's a lead, an ad lib, and then there's like what we call a hype track. And then that stencil of laying down vocals was something that I used for anything that I was doing. It didn't matter if I was doing a feature for a pop group. It didn't matter if I was doing a, a feature on an R&B song, a feature on a hardcore rap record, my own album. That was the stencil. That was the caveat. And playing the beat with the notepad over and over what's the thing and that turned into about 10 years of the same result it wasn't until i realized that i was doing it that i was picking the same kind of beats you know it's like you setting creative traps for yourself you just got a rock basically after a while you don't even realize that you're just going to your easy option producers send like tons of beats and i'm just looking for that one that i know i can write to you know what i mean like i'm looking for that that one and that one turns into the same thing as that last one and the one before that. And then it gets approached the same way as that last one and the one before that. And, uh, and before you know it, a whole bunch of times went by and you haven't really developed. So I stopped having a process and I stopped adding curriculum to my creativity, my lexicon of creative things. I stopped adding curriculum to it. I stopped having structure. So anything can happen at any given moment. 
you know, like five, six in the morning laying vocals after not doing anything in here all night is totally appropriate to me. And like writing something down just because I feel like it is totally okay. Not writing it down because that's not how I feel right now. That's okay too. Turning on the beat, having the mic right in front of me. And if I think of two lines and I just lay them down because I want to hear how they sound on the beat, that's appropriate too. The, the less structured, the better for me. Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with Grandma Sandy. And on behalf of 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, we take this look back at Super Bowl history. I went to the DMV last week because I lost my wallet, and I had to wait in line for 45 minutes. And my bunions hurt, so I told the lady, Ma'am, my bunions hurt. Can this line move faster? I need to be back at the Hamilton house at 3 for Canasta. And she said, I'm sorry, but there are many people who were here first, so you have to wait. And I told her, but Marge is bringing brownies to Canasta, and she uses chopped nuts. My, I love chopped nuts, but the lady made me wait. And I miss the nuts. Do you know what time Law and Order is on? Grandma Sandy, what does any of this have to do with the Super Bowl? Do you have my sandwich? You'll like this, actually. So, because of you, today, Wikipedia, Sarah Bartman. Mm -hmm. Because I had no idea. And you literally, all right, you have a song upside down. And Mm -hmm. um, I was listening to it today. I'd heard it before, but I was listening to it today and kind of taking mental notes about it. And you wrote, um, Gucci ain't the only ones putting black faces on front of shirts. Black women want to be built like cartoon characters. Eric Cartman, that bears a striking resemblance to Sarah Bartman. Now Google that when you get a chance. And Sarah Bartman, I knew nothing about it. South African woman was basically exploited. I mean, long story. What would even make you think Sarah Bartman? How do you know about Sarah Bartman to have Sarah Bartman enter your head to think, I'm going to put Sarah Bartman in a song I'm doing? It seems like a million degrees of, of genius separation. I honestly don't remember the origin of me learning about her. It's just something that I've always known. I can't remember exactly what made me intrigued by her story. But I've been a researcher of uh, facts for some years now. I even like researching anecdotal facts. Not only do I like to find out the truth in things, but I also like to know what's being said. Maybe I'm just nosy in that way. Maybe it's a good way of me minding my own business because when people feel like Royce is never in anybody's business, that's just because I'm so busy being in the business of history. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I don't remember exactly how I um, found out about her, but I know um, I was having a conversation with one of my people in the studio one time. And um, that's another part of the creative process, too, that, that um, I don't think a lot of artists are aware of. But when you're sitting in the studio talking, if it's productive conversation, you're writing a song already. Anything that's inspiring you in any sort of way, if you're watching a documentary, it's all part of the creative process. I don't look at that any different than, than playing a beat and writing, jotting down ideas. It's all brainstorming. It's all about what makes you comfortable. Wait, do you, do you not view... All right, example. I hear your song. I look up Sarah Bartman. I'm now educated into something I didn't know before. Mm-hmm. Doesn't, I'm not saying this personal engagement, but doesn't that bring you some satisfaction that thanks to you, thanks to your music, you actually enlighten somebody? Like, isn't that part of being an artist is actually bringing enlightenment to people? Or do you not, does that not really care? Do you not care that much about that? It's more fulfillment that comes out of that than money. Right. I remember the first time I went to a meet and greet and somebody told me, and somebody told me that one of my songs saved their life. 
because I express openly and transparently all of my issues with sobriety, everything that I've been going through with sobriety. Prior to that, I never would have looked at it like that because I just look at it like, you know, I'm just kind of like letting some of the things go that's on, that's on my mind. It's just, I'm just letting some of these things go. To see the effect of it and to see a positive effect come from something that you're putting into the universe, you're placing it into the universe. And prior to that, you've placed things in the uni- into the universe. You've been paid to place things into the universe. And you watched a negative reaction come from it. The only thing positive that came from it was just people being into it, but not in a positive way. You know what I'm saying? I do. So, like, that was the first time where I felt like I could do something. I could put something into the universe that can actually provoke a positive reaction and actually help people. And, like, that turned into me wanting to be more progressive. And then it it turned into me being a little bit more conscious of the things that I say using my platform and it it turned into me viewing my platform as something more than just releasing albums and doing interviews you sometimes listen maybe young artists or even older artists and think that's the best you have this like that's that's your best message you can say anything you want and that's or no are you not that way not disappointed in the individuals but disappointed in the support system and the environment that inspired that yeah because you hear greatness in it, always. Right. You hear greatness in it, and you just hear where so much more can be applied to that greatness. And you, you can't really hold somebody's ignorance against them. That, and that ignorance is telling, man. It's telling. It's created. It's a part of not being a part of the fundamental things that are in place in America for you to thrive, not being a part of these systems and being outside of the paradigm of success and having the idea of success placed in front of you as the measuring stick with an agenda behind it is a tough thing to do. And not having a voice and not being heard and being overlooked, undervalued, and being at the bottom of the food chain as it pertains to everything that would be in amenity in America, from funding to the justice system. Yeah. That creates the atmosphere. So like all of these guys that are on online right now and they're going, oh yeah, it was a, a record breaking number of murders in Chicago. It's like, yo, why don't, y'all t- why don't y'all take those guns and come out here and let's fight for a real cause. I get mad at that. I hold that kind of behavior against people because usually they're very, very smart people who are like some, being selective at the moment with their intelligence. Like you're speaking to an environment, number one, you're speaking at an environment who can't hear you because you never listen to them. And you're also speaking to a group of people that are in a situation that you couldn't wrap your brain around if if we gave you every dollar in the world. You couldn't put that shoe on your foot if we paid you to. So you don't have a level of understanding enough to be able to judge not just them, but anybody. Imagine being marginalized to a subjugated environment and in this environment there's a language that is spoken it's the gun language and you don't have any desire to kill anybody you don't have any desire to hurt anyone all you did was be born and the only way that you're going to survive is if you speak the same language that's being spoken in that environment. And you never left the environment. You, your, your view of the world is through the lens of just this environment. 
you don't even have a propensity to kill, but you have every intention of living. So what, what that turns into is guys shooting out of car windows, people shooting into crowds of people, people shooting into houses. You know what I mean? Because you're trying to establish that you're willing to shoot in order to keep yourself safe, but you don't want to run up on anybody and just kill them like some serial killer or something. But, but, the repercussions of that is to be treated like a serial killer. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that turns into, oh man, babies are getting shot. Yeah, that's what stray bullets do. They kill innocent people. But you know what else kills innocent people? Guns. And those same monsters that you're talking about never made a gun, never created a gun, couldn't tell you how to make one, don't know where the guns came from. And it's just like, it, it's an it's a atmosphere that's created that never gets addressed. Just the result of the things that come out of that atmosphere. So I find that interesting too, because that's another thing I can argue with my white followers about. They actually come to me and they say, well, I think black people are the problem because they make up a 40 plus percent of the homicides. What do you have to say to that? And when they say shit like that, oh, I love it. Yeah. Now it's time to talk. You know what I mean? Because they don't, they don't understand the concept of creating an atmosphere that's going to give you that on 100% of the time. Yeah. No matter what group of people you place into the atmosphere, that's what you're going to get. It, it's funny how um, 50 white guys in camo with guns at a state house is like patriotic and great Americans. But if it were 50 African-Americans at the exact same place at the exact same time, it'd be an act of terror in America. It's turning into such the obvious that I'm not even surprised anymore. You know what I mean? And it's just like, I'm more surprised with just the black people that are yelling at the other black people about, you know, like, you know, when we say black lives matter. And then some, some white people take offense to that, which is interesting. Some white people take offense to that and they respond to it. They respond to it as like a counter. You know what I'm saying? So that's where all lives matter matter comes from so now we're going black lives matter versus all lives matter you know what i mean like it, it, which is ridiculous so you so and then like then you have black people within the black community doing the same thing to other black people well if black lives are going to matter then black lives got to matter all the time i saw your yeah. cherry Cruz love letter that was good and i'm just sitting here sober just like looking at all of this like do you guys really want to have this argument like right this second like right now you know what I mean? Like, uh, do you really want to unpack this right in this moment right here? Like, this is like, I think it's obvious that that's problematic, but don't you think that's like a separate conversation that we should be having that doesn't conf conflict with a protest that we're actively in already? And it's like, it gives people ammunition to say, no, look at what you guys are doing. All of this is your fault. I went through like the entire public school system going to parent-teacher conferences with a very strict, proud, old-fashioned man, a father. And every single parent-teacher conference was the same thing. Mr. Montgomery Ryan is very smart. He can do better. All he has to do is just apply himself. So me not being willing to apply myself just became the caveat. Yeah. No, nobody was in the situation to put any sort of perspective to anything. The teacher said it, my father took that as law, and I took it as, let me do some self-reflecting and figure out why I keep failing. 
the possibility of being thrown under the bus by a teacher, it's not even a thought in anybody's head. So it isn't until I become an adult and I view the world a certain way that I look at the possibility of the institution actually failing me as opposed to me failing the institution. Right. And then once you realize that, that that's a possibility, you start to look at other things a little bit different. You know what I mean? So while you're yelling to like the kids that are in the Cabrini Greens projects about them killing each other and not coming and fighting with us for a better cause, it, it's like they're not a part of this cause. We're not a part of that cause. They're fighting for a cause. They're fighting for a cause that they were fighting for way longer than we've been protesting this. You're just looking at them now and you're hyper-focused on that because of what's going on here. But they've never been, they've never felt like a part of us, just like the LGBTQ community. They don't feel like they're a part of the movement that's currently in place. They don't feel embraced by black males in, in, the, in the culture. They feel like they got a completely separate movement. Right. And that means nothing to us until there's a pandemic and the world is in complete disarray and we start to see how damaging all of these different gaps between people within one, one group, how damaging they are to the culture as a whole. Yeah. And it's the, it's the first time where people who are willing to, to hold themselves accountable can really see the part that they've been playing in this. And it's nobody in particular that you can blame. That's how confusing, conflated, and fucked up this shit is. Let me ask you a final thing. How do you, um, how has COVID, how has the isolation of COVID, how has that impacted your writing? Um, that's a good question. Only because of where I am as a writer this many years in, I told myself, like, I don't know how many years ago, but I remember that I hit a point in life where, especially, right, especially in creativity, where I just decided that I wasn't going to just do shit. You know, I, I just started feeling like everything that I've ever done with, that was with purpose, I don't remember it ever failing me. I don't remember it ever not working well for me. Right. You know, but then I could think of plenty of times where I was just doing shit. Just doing shit. You know, just writing raps, just to write raps. Just uh, making records just to be on the radio. Making, you know, like, and, and that that never works for me. It's just like, as soon as the wrong intent is behind the action, God gets up and he walks out of the room on me. Right. So I just look at it like I need fulfillment at this point in life when I do things. I can't find any fulfillment in, in being famous. It does nothing for me. That can't be the agenda for me because that's never what it's been about. I never was here to get famous because you can be famous and, and be completely not successful. Takashi right. 6 9 is not successful. He's famous. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so, that, so that's my thing. So now, because I can't find fulfillment in just writing raps just to be writing raps, I can't put it into the category of writer's block when I'm distracted. And the, the whole COVID thing and everything that's happening in the world, it's just got me really distracted. Yep. Not only is it a little bit harder for me to write things when I'm distracted by anything, but it also, it's not, I don't like to create when I'm distracted by things. 
I'm, I'm the same way. Like right now, it's weird. You have all this time. So you would think it'd be really productive time, but it's a lot of like, there's a lot of time spent like watching crappy reality TV or taking walks. Like, what are you doing with your time that you, that you maybe should be writing or would be writing? Like, what are you doing? Anything I want to do. Yeah. Just sitting and doing nothing is an action to me. I identify that as something. Yeah. Like, I'm doing nothing. That's what I'm, that's something. That's so a nothing. thing. Yeah. That's a thing. That's like doing that instead of writing is therapeutic. It's a thing that I'm doing instead of writing. I don't even look at it like I'm doing nothing because it's, it's silence is super loud, man, to me. I hear that shit louder than anybody yelling. You know what I mean? So yeah. sometimes, you know, like Kendrick Lamar right now, he goes away and that speaks volumes, you know, yeah. because he, he's yelling at you every day, letting you know that you don't get to know what he's doing and he'll be back. You know what I mean? That's, that's what that loud silence is saying. So like whenever I'm, trying to create and you know like people are getting hung from trees every other day and like i'm writing things and i'm i'm saying things i'm speaking about things i'm rapping about things that i've already expressed on my last album and i'm still trying to figure out exactly what i want to talk about i don't mind taking the time to just figure out what what that's gonna be and i you know like i just sometimes i find myself writing a couple lines and I step away from it. I get on the phone, maybe do an interview. And then I got to talk to my wife. And then I got to, you know, um, I go outside, get some sun. You know what I mean? Sometimes I come back, I start making a beat. Sometimes I go back to my notepad on my phone and I look at something that I walked away from and I don't even remember ever doing it. You right. know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. fun. For some reason, man, when I don't chase it, it doesn't run from me. When I go after it, it it becomes elusive. It's interesting. So I let it come to me, and it always works itself out. It's like when you're, uh, you have a single friend who desperately wants to get married, and she keeps going on blind dates, and you're like, maybe you shouldn't go on blind dates. And it'll <laughs> yeah. come to you, but if you keep trying, you're always going to have crappy dates. Yep. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's perspective, because it's a, it's, a, it's a value system. You know, like when you start treating your time like it's valuable, and you start spending your time, the way you want to and you spend it like it's your money. Once you do that, then, you know, you got it halfway figured out from there, you know? Right. So then those, a lot of those blind dates start to look, you know, like they don't look the same. You start looking at, I don't know if I can afford this blind date. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like knowing what you're not willing to give, that's the first step to, you know, that kind of literacy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like my dad, when I, when I gra graduated high school, my dad told me either go to the army or get out. And I had no idea what I wanted to do in life, but I knew what I didn't want to do. And that was the start. And that was go to the army. Yeah. So that's why I moved out. And that was the beginning of my Royce to five nine career. Thanks, Dad. That worked out well. <laughs> yeah, of course. It, it works out. It works out. Was there a path of you going to college? Like you coming out, going whatever, two years community college and go to a big or go four years? Michigan State or something, was that a potential path for you before this happened? Yes, I wanted very much to go to college. I still wish I could have went to college, you know, because I actually talked my way into um, some general courses at Wayne State. And um, I went to class about three times. 
I had to take a, I had to walk to this mall called Northland Mall and take a bus from Northland Mall to a bus stop near the Northwest Activity Center, which is where I took the General Wayne State classes at. Yeah. Just so happens that Greenfield Plaza was right across from the bus stop. So Greenfield Plaza is where the studio was at that I, the first studio I ever recorded at. So what was happening was I, I would plan on walking to the bus stop, but I would always just end up at the studio instead of Wayne State. So I actually went to class like three times. When I went to class those couple of times, I was just looking for something that I could latch on to that can hook me. Like it's like getting back in the gym after you let yourself get really out of shape. You're just looking for that one session that just reels you back in and then you're addicted to your workout, then you focus and then you know you're going to get in shape. Yeah. I was kind of looking at the Wayne State thing like that and I just wasn't able to, I wasn't able to find anything that I can grab onto. So um, for a long time, I just, I just told myself that I wasn't the academic type. I, I'm, I'm just not one of those. I'm not one of those kind of learners. And then I learned in life later, man, you know, like that wasn't the case at all. It's just I never was given the opportunity to truly be able to apply myself in that way. In another world, you're like a, a PhD teaching literature, you know, like yeah. it's just funny how yeah. life goes, you know, turn left, turn funny right. Funny how life goes. Funny how life goes, man. Yeah. I just want you to know, I just want to say, so my son and I, my son's 13, his name's Emmett, and we have a, uh, a six and a half hour ever growing playlist, uh, hip hop playlist. And he gets annoyed as hell at me because I always go, ring the alarm, the cat's <laughs> like, dad, shut up. So I just want you to know he blames you personally for this uh, <laughs> in our relationship. <laughs> tell him my apology statement is coming soon, man. It's coming <laughs> soon. I got, I got to word it perfectly. Again, you're a great writer. I know you know that, but you're a great writer, man. And I just, it's a real honor for me to have you on here. Seriously, I'm a, I'm a huge admirer of your work and, and your messaging. And I, I just think it's, you're one of the greats, man. Thank you, my good brother, man. I appreciate you, man. And the, and the respect is mutual. Feeling is likewise, man. Thank, thank you, you so much. I want to thank today's guest, Royce the 59 for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Royce on Twitter and Instagram at Royce the 59 and buy his latest album, The Allegory, on all platforms. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.